But we're starting chapter 7, like I said, and there's multiple lessons here in this first story uh, that we're going to take a look at in chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to share just a couple of the lessons that you could learn in this. There's actually, in this first story, there's a lesson about race we could learn. Jesus will interact with someone who's not Jewish. And how does he do that? What does he do about those things? There's a great, great illustration that we could draw from this. It would be worthy of some time spent there. There's a lesson about authority, what authority Jesus has and how authority works. We could look at the, this passage and pull things from there. There's a lesson about faith. What is faith? What does faith look like? What demonstrates faith? There's also a lesson we could learn about how do you come to Jesus. What does that look like? when you, That come to Jesus moment, what does that look like? How does Christ respond? What attitude or posture should we display as we come to Christ? But altogether, I think this story begins, something we're going to see progress, is what is this Jesus like? Now, I think this is important because, and I'm so glad that when I said I'm done with chapter 6, I got a, oh. You know what's actually interesting is, is each week as it's, that has built, and, and I, I kept adding, right? I kept going back and rereading all of those. I saw physically, for mi- many of you, winces of almost pain to some of these commands that Jesus has laid out before you. Like, ooh, that's a hard one. Oh, mm, man, how in the world? Oh. Some of you, I could read your thoughts. You were like sending me mental images that were saying, skip it. <laughs> skip it. I, you preached about it last week, and I was able to, through the course of this week, forget that you said it. So why are you bringing it up again? But, there, but I, I exaggerate a little bit, because I know some of you are like, I know what that's, what I, I mean, it's clear. I mean, those teachings were clear. I mean, you, there's no getting around it. I, I could have just read that, that passage it, without any explanation, and there's so many things you could have just walked away with it and gone, this is, this is hard. And I want to say... That those reactions, that's okay, first off. But one of the things that's going to help you to be able to do those things is when you start to understand who says to do them. And what I think you're going to find as we progress through chapter 7, but then all the way to the end, we're going to see this again and again, but definitely right off the bat, we're going to see, okay, he said to do these things. But who is it that's telling us to do these things? That can make a world of difference, can it? One of the things I've learned um, teaching in public school, um, you can no longer demand obedience. I know that some of you go, I don't like that. I don't like it either. Okay, that's, I'm not going to talk about what, we're not talking about what you like. I'm just saying this is a reality. If I have students that come in and I say, you should do this because I said so. I'm going to tell you right now, that will not work. And we, we brought up an interesting point in uh, our lesson today. Uh, you got to understand, I would say 99% of the kids that I talk to are not coming from a background that understands who God is. And, 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 either, and you have to understand that ultimately, why do we do what we're told to do? Ultimately, it's because of God, God is who he is, and he's designed this world, and there's this, I mean, it all goes back to him, but you have children who are not being taught those things. 
And I can guarantee, whether you like it or not, I've told many new teachers, I can guarantee if you want to have an explosion in your class, just demand they do things. Every single time, it'll blow up. And you go, I don't like that. Now, here, here's an interesting thing I learned. I learned this several years ago. I was in a training, and most of the trainings, as you guys know that have been with me for a long time, most of the trainings that I get that are education-related and teacher-related, I could give a good <laughs> to, okay? <laughs> it's ridiculous. There's things that I'm like, oh, my word. But there's all kinds of ridiculous things. Not just the teaching, but sometimes like when I go to some of these teacher trainings, and I'm, tr- I'm trying to learn how to be a better teacher, and they're making me do jellyfish fist bumps. Let's do a jellyfish fist bump. Bloop. I'm like, come on. The cheers, remember the cheers? Who was here when I used to joke about the cheers? We go to this one training I went to and there's cheers. They did all these cheers. We get to the end of the thing and they'd make us do this special cheer and I'm like, oh my word. I had veins popping out of my forehead. But I went to one that I learned something valuable. I learned something, and when I first heard it, I thought, that's hogwash. But I found it to be absolutely true. They were talking about how quite often people that come from low-income children that come from low-income situations many times will do schoolwork not for the grade, not for what they get out of it, but for you, the teacher. And when I first heard that, I was like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because I, I didn't do anything for the teacher. Never. I never did things because I liked that teacher. I did things because I wanted a good grade, and I knew if I didn't get good grades, I would have to answer for it when I got home. Right, Mom? Yeah. I had to work hard because of that structure that was set in place. That was my motivating factor. And there was some motivation as well. I think some kids get a good motivation. They're, it's drilled into their heads from the time they're little. Got to work hard. Got to get good grades. Go to college. Get a good job. Blah, blah, blah. And they just hear it so many times. They're like, I got to go hard. Gotta go, and they're just ready to do it. But quite often, we have kids that that's not there at all. There's no accountability when they get home, and there's, there's, there's no, they, they don't have hopes and dreams. But they will, quite often, work for you, the teacher. And I found that to be absolutely true. I don't fully comprehend it. But it's absolutely true. There's something about, and so as I've built relationships with kids, there's things that I can tell students and in fact i've been able to shift with some that i know really well i've been able to shift from hey could you do that to hey you know you're not supposed to do that word before that would have caused a big problem but i know they know me they know i love them they know i care about them they know i'm not trying to pull rank and i'm talking to them on a, a certain footing a certain level and there's things that I can get those kids to do simply because I've built a relationship with them. And here's the thing. They know me. They know Mr. Harmless. And when they see me, they're like, oh, Mr. Harmless. And then I, I can get them. I say, hey, listen. In fact, it, it works to my benefit sometimes because I have kids that, are, man, they want to get on their phones, everything else. And there's a certain teacher that, that teacher, when, they, when they're on their phones, like, I told you to get off your phone. In 1950s, that would have worked, but we didn't have phones, so I don't know. But I will tell them, hey, listen, they're not going to say it to you in a way that you like, 
But for me, could you just get off your phone? You're causing me a lot of paperwork here <laughs> as the dean. Do you know how much paperwork I have to do? Would you just, could you just get off your phone? Like, all right, Mr. Harmless, I'll do it for you. I said, now that doesn't mean I don't want you to come down to the dean's office. You still come down sometimes just to say hi. And I got a little thing of suckers. Like, can I have a sucker too? Yeah, absolutely. Come on, I get a sucker. But there's something about obedience, even for you, obedience to the one that you know can, can, can make a world of difference, can it not? And so as we look at Jesus, we start looking at Jesus. And we were doing this when we started Luke. I felt like we were just really getting, let's get to know Jesus all over again. And now that we've heard, we're getting to know him a little bit, but then here he goes, this is the things he says. And a lot of us were like, I don't know about that. And that's okay. Let's take those things that are difficult, don't throw them in the trash, but just put them on the back burner and consider who it is that's asking you to do these things. Okay? Now, Let's jump into the story. Luke chapter 7. We'll start with verse 1. After he'd finished his sayings, all his sayings, all this teaching, he just finished up. In the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So I got a map here. And fortunately for me, I was, able, I was talking to Paul the other day, and Paul has actually been to Capernaum. That Paul, world traveler. Now, there, it was interesting, he brought something up the other day uh, that I had heard years ago and I'd forgotten. He was talking about when he was there, 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 there actually is this, up on the top of this level, there's a plane. And this is one of the reasons why some people think that Matthew describes it as the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke describes it as the Sermon on the Plain, because on the top of this mount, there's a plane. Could have gone either way, depending on where, how you're looking at it. But down, not too far from this, is the city of Capernaum, and it's a small town, okay? Did you see it up there? Some of you are like, right there. Right on the shores, right? The Sea of Galilee. So Jesus comes down after he's teaching. He gets down there, and a centurion had a servant who was sick. And at the point of death, and the servant also was highly valued by this centurion. Now, centurion was a commander in the Roman army, over a hundred People. You had commanders over 10, you had commanders over 100, you had commanders over 1,000. He was commander over 100 people. And so I can imagine the size of Capernaum, he was probably the chief one of that area. This is an important individual. He had a servant or a slave who was sick. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, the same story is told where Matthew says that this, he was, describes him as being paralyzed. Put these little accounts together to get this guy, I mean, he's at the point of death and if you've been around anybody who's at the point of death you have that death watch that the labored breathing the raspy breathing i mean i i can imagine that he's sitting here and this particular servant he goes and it's he's gonna die we've done everything we could he's not gonna make it and he was important he was highly valued it could mean dear to him it could simply mean he was very important for how he ran his house. I think it was probably a little bit of both. He's important to the centurion. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, has there been word traveling about Jesus that we've already talked about in Luke? 
One of the, one of the things we've, that, that has traveled about Luke has been what? His, or about a, that Luke has shared with us about Jesus is that he's healing people. There's miraculous things. This Jesus has power over sickness and death. The centurion has heard about Jesus. He knows he's in this town. He's sent to him, so he sends a delegation. Now, when Matthew shares this story, I'm going to talk about this again in a minute. When Matthew shares the story, it sounds like the centurion went himself. But Luke gives us a little bit more information. So he sends a delegation. He sent to him, sent to Jesus, elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So this centurion got the sick servant. You with me in this story? Got the sick servant. He's getting ready to die. And he goes, I, Jesus, I need Jesus in this situation. So he knows he's an important person in the city. He sends, and this elders of the Jews is a, uh, a way of referring to civil leaders of the town. And so he sends them. So they go, asking him to come and heal his servant. And so they do. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. So they're pleading, they're lobbying on behalf of this guy. Could you do this, please? Here's why. You ever, you ever do that when you go pray? You should do this because you start lobbying with Jesus. And they give some very good reasons. He's worthy, and they get, say, state two reasons why. Uh, what's the first one there? It says, he is worthy to have you do this for him. And what's the first reason it says right there? Yeah, he loves our nation. Now, now think about think this through a little bit. I, I thought this was interesting as well. This guy is really exemplifying some of what Jesus was talking about in his sermon anyway, already. Love your enemies. Here this Roman is in Galilee. He knows he's an unwanted person. There's not a Jew that goes, we love having these guys here ruling over us. They want him out. But this guy, as he's come in, he has demonstrated in some way, shape, or form that he cares about the people that he's over, that he's there and he cares about it. It's important to him. He loves our nation. So these Jewish leaders say, hey, he's, he, lo- he loves our nation. He's not like some that you may have met. He loves our nation. And what's the second reason? What did he do? Build a synagogue. The lowest paid soldiers at this time made 75 denarii. A centurion would make anywhere from 3,750 to 7,500 denarii. So you're talking about a guy who probably made a lot of money. And he's taken this money that he has in his love for these people, and he's done something. In fact, I did not know this. Paul told me the other day, this is the other thing he shared. This is one of those cities where that you can actually see there's one synagogue. And so this synagogue... And you can see just the foundation of it, I think, right? The synagogue that is in Capernaum, you can still see it to this day. It's been uncovered. And they go, this is, this is, so this synagogue is still there. But this centurion, who's not Jewish, he, he's a benefactor to these people. What has he done? He loves the nation. And he's gone out of his way to say, I'm, I'm going to build this synagogue for these people. And he's done this thing for them. And so these Jewish leaders come to him, come to Jesus and say, Hey, he's worthy of you doing this. This request is not too much because he loves our nation. And he, I mean, just to prove that he loves our nation, he's that synagogue that you've taught in Christ, he, he's the one that built that. Again, have you ever 
Have you ever lobbied Jesus this way? Even for another, on another's behalf, have you ever done that? Lord, I pray that you'd heal them because they, because, right? These civil leaders come to Jesus this way on behalf of the centurion and his servant. Regardless of the reasoning, Jesus in, does go with them. And that's what it says next in verse 6. He went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. Now, here's what I think happened. I think that these Jewish leaders went, and there's probably a few other people, and they, they hear the whole conversation. Jesus says, okay, let's go, and he's headed this way. I think, and I don't know, I think that maybe there was other people either in the group or maybe there was another servant that had gone with these guys or something else that, you know, got a lot of energy. One of the younger guys, like, he runs ahead. He wants to tell the centurion, he's going to do it. He's coming. So he runs ahead. And I imagine at this moment, they start telling the centurion, this is how, well, how what did he say? How did it happen? This is what happened. It was I imagine the centurion go, oh, my word. They said, what? Listen to what he sends now. He doesn't have any more delegates to send. So he's got some friends there. He goes, you guys need to go quick. And so he sends these friends, it says, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Now, the delegates had said, you should because he's worthy. What is this centurion? I think he's going, that's a misrepresentation. (laughs) What does he say? I'm not worthy. Imagine him sending his friends, go, you got to tell Jesus this. I did not tell them to build me up. Just, I, that's not why I want him to do this. This isn't about worth. It's not about my worthiness. Don't trouble yourself to come. I'm not worthy to do these things. And then his friends continue on. Relaying the words of the centurion, which is why I think when Matthew shares the story, he relays it as if the centurion is there. He skips the fact that this was relayed. Therefore, this is why I didn't come to you. I did not presume to come to you. But Lord, right? Christ, just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers then under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. My word is command. The centurion understands two things from this statement. One, what authority is, how it works. The word is command. That's true authority. But he also understands that Jesus has authority And specifically in this case, he believes that Jesus has authority over this sickness. In such a way that he's not looking at Jesus like some mystical worker. He is recognized Lord. And if the Lord says it ought to be done, Jesus has authority over this world. This is not some trick, not some... He's not, he's not hoping Jesus is going to come and make a potion. He's not a doctor. He goes, I, I understand authority. I'm in authority. I'm under authority. If I need something done, I can just say it. He doesn't have to come here to make it happen. Just say the word. <clears throat> it's interesting. Uh, 
one of the side trails I could have gone down at this point is to consider. Think back. Let's, let's just go back. Let's just travel back in time. Let's travel back. Remember, remember a minute ago when I was talking about that sermon? And there's some things in there. And what was one of the last things that Jesus said in that sermon? Why do you call me Lord if you what? Don't do what I say. Do you realize that cells, molecules, bacteria, germs, obey the word of his command? Who are we to not do it? That's authority. The rest of the world obeys his command. I think it's quite interesting that we would go from that do, why you call me Lord if you don't do, to in this story where it's demonstrated that here's somebody that understands that what Jesus says is going to happen, who understands authority. Now we're going to read in the next verse something astounding when you think about who this happens to. It says this next. Jesus hears these things. And he marveled at him. That word marveled can be translated amazed. It can also sometimes it's translated surprised. Now I know on one hand, Jesus is God in the flesh. He, he's not going to, in one sense, he's not going to be surprised at anything. But this action, Jesus stopped and took note of. This attitude, Jesus stopped and took note of. I mean, if you ever go, what, what would cause Jesus to go? It says right here after this, he says, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd, he stops, he hears this, he says, I tell you. So he goes around to the crowd, there's people probably following him. Oh, he's going to do another miracle, let's go see it. And they're following him. And he turns around and looks at the crowd, he says, I'm going to tell you right now, not even in Israel, with all the Jewish people that I've met, not even in Israel have I found such faith. If we were to exclaim this or say this in, in a modern form of discussion, he would have thrown in a, that's the stuff right there. That's what I'm talking about. That is what I'm talking about. That's what he would have said. That's how we would have said it today. I've been talking about this faith. That's it right there. He gets it. He knows. He understands. Quick discussion on faith. I think faith can be a confusing thing to discuss. I really think it can be. In, in the world that we live in especially, I think it's been just, just completely convoluted. It's a ridiculous mess of ideas. We often confuse faith with a sense or a feeling of trust. I've heard before that to understand the word faith, the best way, when we use the word faith correctly, it's like if I were to say, I, I adhere to the Christian faith. It's, it's an understanding, it's a belief system, it's what you believe to be true. One of the things I do sometimes to help myself understand the word faith is I substitute it occasionally with the word understanding. Think back to this, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such understanding. Have I seen it? Here, here's a guy who 
is seeing it clearly. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such understanding. Everybody's misunderstanding Jesus. This guy understood what was going on. Are the lessons what we could have pulled from this, we could pull into this, this idea of grace. Actually, it's interesting that when Matthew shares this story, he kind of hones in on that a little bit more than Luke does, and he talks about uh, this exact thing in Matthew chapter 8. If you read through Matthew chapter 8, he says, he says, not even in Israel. And he said, this is why the gospel basically is going to go out to the whole world. He connects it to that idea. Like I said, we could learn lessons about authority, how it works, what it looks like. Talk about faith. We could talk about coming to Jesus. What kind of attitudes do you see demonstrated in the way this guy has come to Jesus? Is there an attitude of humility? But overall, we're getting a glimpse, and this is just the first of many we're going to get as we go through Luke chapter 7, a glimpse of who is Jesus. What is he like? What is he like? I want to read the last verse, and then I want to come back and talk about some of these things again. Because this is what he says next. This is the next thing that happens. After Jesus goes, that's the stuff right there. Because when those had been sent returned to the house they found the servant well matthew shared with us that jesus said let it be done and they figured out later that it happened that exact moment when jesus says let it be done they started calculating they got back to the house and they go he's already well like when did it happen well it was approximately he, i always I always picture that moment in my head wait a minute wait a minute how when did he when did he wake up and start feeling better well it was about you know i think it was approximately you know two minutes ago or whatever wait a minute we were only two minutes from the house. We, we, we ran from here when he said, let it be done, and we left, and we ran. It took us about two minutes. I bet the same moment that he said, let it be done, was the exact same moment, and they don't understand all the details like we've started to understand in our world today. We've got microscopes and all kinds of things. We look in what's going on in the human body that same moment that Jesus said, let it be done, was the exact same moment that the cells in this guy's body, the bacteria or virus or whatever was in his body, the moment that Jesus said, let it be done, boom. The physical world obeyed the Lord. This is not the last time we're going to see this. Think back. Why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say. The bacteria know to obey the voice of the Lord. Cells know to obey the voice of their Lord. You also know you ought to obey the voice of your Lord. I go back through these lessons that we could have pulled. Your background, nationality, culture, whatever, these are not the things that will define you. As Paul the Apostle says later, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, but we are all one in Christ. This is not going to be the thing. We are in him. We could also learn, as I've said, Jesus has authority. And we start thinking about these aspects, how Jesus looks at this situation. What did he marvel about? 
Now, I know, I have to throw that in here right now. I know some of you are thinking, wow, are we going to get done really early? <laughs> we are. I know that this Jesus, ultimately, if we're going to talk about worth, he's the one that is worthy. In this story, it's not the guy and all that he did, and he knew that. But let's think for a moment about these things here. Jesus has authority. He is to be obeyed. Everything falls in line. Eventually, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. You are called to do that today. He has authority over this world, so we, as part of this world, ought to obey him. We are called to come to him in faith, believing who he is, simply believing who he is and what he does, not demanding, not expecting not laying out a list of reasons. Lord, you ought to do these things because of this, this, and this. But Lord, I know if you say it'll happen, but I'm not even worthy for you to step foot under my roof. We are called to him in humility. To come to him, to call out to him, not on our own merit, but because he is worthy. Two things as I close. One is this, if you've been coming to Jesus with reasons why he should help you, you need to stop sending that delegation and simply come to him in humility. Just, this is a real simple thing. When you pray to Christ, besides the fact that you don't need to do that anyway, don't. Lord, I, I'm, it's all you. I'm going to trust whatever you do. But this can alter how you come to Christ. Don't come to him bringing a list of reasons why. You got this sick person that you know and you love? Don't come and say, Lord, could you save them because of this, 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 and this? this. Simply say, Lord, we're not worthy for this. But Lord, I know the one hope I have for this health to be restored is all in your hands. I know that if you just said it, it would happen. I know the fact that it hasn't happened yet is because you haven't said it yet. I know that one day there's going to be a shout, a cry of command. And even if this body has met death and gone to the grave, Christ is going to shout and say, rise. The trumpet will blow and your body, that dead body, no matter how, you ever wonder about that? What, what about, you ever do, some of you have probably done this before. What, what, about, what about the people that fell in the ocean and got ate by fish? All I know is that when he says it, you're going to be there. What, what about the people that were, were burned or have so, I mean, 10,000 years ago or whatever, they died and they're completely disintegrated at this point. What about those who are in him? He's going to say, right. Because the matter of this earth obeys their Lord. And he will, if he does not do it here, if he does not give Frank restored health here. Frank knows that one day he will have restored health at a voice from the Lord. 
And he knows that as he sits in that chair, if the Lord wanted to give him, and I'm saying this from him, if the Lord wanted to give him a good night's sleep, all the Lord would have to do is say, you're going to have a good night's sleep tonight. And so he knows if he didn't, that's okay. If the Lord said it, it would have happened. He is not absent. But two, if you're hesitant to be obedient to the teachings of Christ, understand there is ultimate authority in him. And you have that opportunity now, today, to be obedient. And so this is just the first step. As we start going through Luke chapter 7 here, we're going to get to chapter 8, chapter 9. You're going to start seeing again and again reasons. This is the first. We're going to see another one next week. Some of John's disciples come to Christ and say, who are you? So here we have this story, but then right after that, there's a who are you question. Are you really the one? And then we're going to come back, and it's going to be another illustration of Christ doing these miraculous things. And we're going to have another story where he demonstrates authority. We're going to see again and again. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you're like, okay, I'm starting to see what you're saying. I'm, I'm okay with that. This is going to be a progression now. I want to show you from Luke's words that Christ is worthy of your obedience. And here's the first one. He has authority over disease. By the word of his mouth, what he says happens. I'm going to pray. After I'm done praying, Paul's going to come up and uh, uh, guide us through communion. Um, some things I was going to say about that, but I'm actually going to let you say some things about that instead. If that's okay with you. I, I, thought, I saw you. I saw him over there jotting ideas. So I'm going to let him say some things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you, Lord, that... I thank you, God, that there was a centurion that lived 2,000 years ago. And regardless of all the good things he did for the people that he was over, at this moment it's recorded that he, in simple humility and faith, said... I need you, and I know that it's just the word of your mouth. And he understood this Jesus was one who had power and authority and could demonstrate it. I thank you, God, that Luke recorded this story for us. I thank you that it was preserved for us to read about, to learn a little bit more about who you are and about your worth. I pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.